Good morning. We're in a transition Sunday today. The school of prayer is coming to a close. If you haven't had the opportunity to participate in the activities of the school of prayer, the worship folders and handouts are still on the table in the lobby, and there's still two more weeks of Lent. It's not too late to uh, attempt some of those disciplines and activities to uh, enrich your prayer life. Today we start the school of service. And you need to understand this type of continuum of teaching isn't compartmentalized. We don't finish the teaching of the school in prayer and then we stop praying and we start thinking about service. We start with the most important things and we add to, right? So praying continues through all these schools and we'll just add the big rocks back into the jar one at a time uh, as uh, we move forward. I'll mention that next Sunday is Palm Sunday, the following Sunday is Easter, so there'll be a, a little break in the school of service. I'm going to try to lay foundation uh, for it this morning, and by the time Easter is over, you should see new banners up here and a new emphasis, and uh, a new set of folders will begin to be published after Easter to help cement the teachings of the school of service. This morning, in terms of the the scriptural basis for what I'm saying, uh, I would like to look at a chunk of scripture. So rather than just focusing on one verse or one small verse, uh, I'm really orienting my thoughts around the Gospel of Mark, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and the sequencing of the stories that are happening in there that pertain to this particular area. So uh, I'll be quoting various verses out of those chapters. So if you have your Bible open, if you can just keep your thumb generally in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, uh, you'll be able to follow along uh, as we move forward. In Mark eight thirty one, Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, be killed, and then three days later, rise again. This is a message the disciples are not prepared to hear. They don't like the message. It's not consistent with their concept of messiahship. And so Peter, the most impetuous of the disciples, speaks out quickly and says, Jesus, you know, don't talk like this. This isn't what we want to hear. And Jesus' rebuke is quick and stinging. Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking in human terms, not in divine terms. And so begins this sequence of interactions where Jesus is helping the disciples understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Just after that, the scriptures say he teaches both the crowd and the disciples with these words, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Jesus has just rebuked Peter for his set of human values and now underlines divine values. He sets the two of them against one another. When we move into the next chapter in Mark 9.33, Jesus and his disciples have traveled to Capernaum. And as they're on the way, the disciples are arguing about something. Nah, 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 nah. You know, it's not, it's not a pleasant conversation. There's like sniping and that kind of stuff going on. And Jesus 
overhears, knows what's going on. And when they arrive at their destination, he says, what are you, what were you arguing about on the road? Well, they don't answer. You know, it's when, it's when someone overhears you saying something you shouldn't be saying, and then they ask you about it, the silence then is deafening. Because you don't want to fess up to what you're talking about. You know it was inappropriate. And these disciples, according to the scripture, are silent in response to Jesus' question. But he knows what the questions were. He knows what they're arguing about. And it was these. Who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who will have the most power among the disciples? Who will have the most influence? Who will be exalted? And, And Jesus knows the issue at hand. And so he teaches again a lesson that he has just taught in the previous chapter. I think it's always insightful when we're reading scripture, when we see a lesson presented more than once in sequence, that's like saying, like, this really is important. This is emphasis by repetition. Okay, and so in chapter 9, we get this again. This is verse 35. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then to make his point even more firm, he takes a little child, picks him up, sets it in the middle of them and says, you, know, you have to be like this little child. You have to be willing to interact with, accept the lowest and the least, the ones that matter least. In this culture, children were just sort of property and you know, they weren't to be considered. They weren't to speak in public. They were, they were off to the side, but Jesus brings the little child center stage and says, you got to care for the lowest and the least if you're going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And apparently to Jesus, the most important person in any of our churches is always the nursery workers. I mean, forever after that, it's the nursery workers who are most important because they're the ones who give attention to the least of these. Well, we don't think about our kids exactly the same way. But Jesus is making the point very clearly, service to the least matters. And then in chapter 10, Jesus tells them again what is going to happen to him. They're headed to Jerusalem. The worst will happen. There's condemnation. There's humiliation. There's torture. And there is death ahead of them on the road, all followed by resurrection. And in response to the news, in response to Jesus' self-revelation of where they're headed, he gets ambushed by James and John. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I mean, if you have children, you've heard that question before. It's like, I want permission for something, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Because if I tell you what it is, you'll probably say no. But if I can get you to make your promise to do what I want you to do, then I have a chance on this one, right? So this is one of those trick questions that little kids use who are clueless. And he said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. 
If ever there was a definition of cluelessness, it's those three words, right? We are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The supreme irony here is that despite Jesus' rebuke of Peter, despite his teachings about denying themselves, of taking up one's cross and losing one's life, despite his rebuke over the squabble on the road about greatness and, and even the example of bringing this little child into prominence, despite his words about being last, least, and the servant of all, and in spite of being told three times that he's going to die and suffer humiliation, James and John are still fantasizing about the coming glory and scheming for positions of privilege. They clearly don't get it. And in spite of all of that, Jesus patiently explains one more time. Mark 10, 42. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's interesting to me that despite the inappropriateness of James and John's request, Jesus doesn't just come straight out and rebuke them. They think they're able to drink the cup that Jesus will drink. They think it's a cup of power and glory, of influence. But it's the cup of suffering that Jesus is going to drink. They think they want to be at the right and left hand of Jesus when he's raised to glory. Jesus says, no, others have been chosen for that spot. Who? Two thieves. There's going to be a thief on his right, a thief on his left when he is raised up in glory on Calvary's cross. And so the disciples don't really know what that spot is. They don't want that spot. They don't know what they're asking. And these guys just simply don't understand the nature of the kingdom of God yet or the mission of Christ and the work to which he is going to assign them. Don't miss these words from Mark 10. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Here's what we're supposed to hear from this. If even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve others, if Jesus, the Son of God, didn't come to be served, but to serve others, shouldn't the same be true for all of those who follow him, all those who are Christian, all of us? 
I mean, if you're candid, if you read carefully, you can't miss the fact that in these chapters, the disciples are being depicted as slow learners. But we probably can relate to that, can't we? I mean, even though they're imperfect, even though they don't understand, even though they have badly misinterpreted Jesus's objectives and example, even though they're clueless, don't miss the fact that they're still with Jesus. They still are in relationship with him. He doesn't cast them aside in frustration. He works with them, restores them, calls them to follow again, much like he does with us. The text in Mark doesn't excuse them, but it doesn't reject them either. And that should be a comfort to us who struggle to serve and obey from time to time. But at some level, you would think, because hindsight is perfect, right? We should be able to do better than them because we know the end of the story. We know that resurrection is coming. We know that Easter is on its way. And so we know that all the claims of Jesus have been validated and vindicated. So based on better posts, a, a better point of observation, you would think that we could do a little better than that. Now, I'll grant you, we live in a very aggressive culture. And that makes our position difficult. The culture conspires to tell us that we should approach life with self-promotion, try to maintain position and power and influence. And these disciples, they want status and significance and affirmation. But Jesus is teaching them a very different truth, a different way of looking at life and the world around them. Greatness is not going to be determined by your visibility by your fame or your influence. Greatness isn't going to be determined by how many people are following you. Greatness is going to be determined by the way you serve. Who relies on you? Who can't get by without your encouragement? Who needs the help only you can give? How are you serving the people that Jesus loves. What are you doing to provide for others by the tasks you undertake, by the way you treat others, by the way you help others to serve, by the way you do the ministries to which Jesus assigns you? You might say, pastor, is the is the whole Christian journey just work and drudgery and cross-bearing? Heavens, no. That's not the whole journey. Listen to these words from Hebrews 12. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken a seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is able to endure because there is joy ahead of him. I remember the day Greg and I are in some backyard pulling vines off a fence that had overgrown. It's a beautiful day. The sun's out. We're working together, humming some tunes, enjoying the day. And all of a sudden, a light dawns on young Greg's face. And he says, Dad, Work can be fun. 
Like it's the first time that thought had ever crossed his mind. And sometimes I wonder if we've all caught that. If we think that the goal of life is leisure and that we live for the weekend so we can stop working and we forget the fact that work is a part of the sacred joy that Christ entrusts us with. He pursues, he heads to Jerusalem because of the joy set before him. What what was the joy that Jesus anticipated? What was the joy that allows him to endure the cross? Well, his journey provides a second chance for all of humanity. His joy is the joy of forgiveness of sins for all the people he loves. His joy is the protection from the ravages of the lifestyles of sin that destroy us. His joy is knowing about the coming day of eternal fellowship with his children. These are things that he valued, things that would bring him great joy in the future. And that that anticipated joy bleeds backwards into the present day and colors everything that happens in his present. His joy is experienced now because of the joy he anticipates, and it colors the way he suffers and serves today. If you think about it, as we get older, many of us dream of days when we can just be surrounded with our family. We want to be with our family. That's, that's a really significant value. Having the whole family there at the same time is a special gift. I know that my parents' greatest joy is when the kids and grandchildren are all gathered back home again, talking and playing and singing, and they can hear the noise and bustle in the house, and their, their kids are gathered around them. And, you know, that is exactly the thing that Jesus longs for. He isn't in this for the glory, though that will come because of what he does. He's in this for the family reunion. He wants all of his children gathered back home again. His work is the reconciliation of the whole race. And that's the same work that he's given us to do. Our job is to work to see as many of his children return for the family reunion. That's not the only joy that's on the table, though. That's the big picture joy. There will be plenty of other joys along the way. Some of that joy will be the satisfaction of working hard towards a similar goal with others. Some of that joy will be the relationships that you build while you work together. Some of the joy will be seeing the fruit of the labor produced by your works in lives rescued, families turned around, folks coming to an enriched relationship with their creator. There will be plenty of joy. But joy in the kingdom of God comes from those or comes to those who follow the example of the son of God who came not to be served, but to serve. 
think on those words. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve. Schools always come with homework. And I would like to give you a suggestion. I predict that sometime during the next six weeks, the Holy Spirit is going to suggest to you some avenue of service. And I would invite you to begin contemplating this response to whatever he suggests. That rather than beginning by trying to figure out why you can't do what you hear him asking, that when you hear him speak, you say, yes, Lord, you'll have to help me. Yes, Lord, you'll have to help me. Think about that. Your homework is to think about that. Lord Jesus, we know that you have given gifts to your people and that by your spirit you call us into service. We ask that in the days ahead you'd speak to our hearts clearly that we would understand and enable us to obey all that you call us to. It's our desire to hear you, to follow you, and to obey you. For we pray this in the name of Christ. And now to the one who began a good work in you and will continue it to the day of full completion, to the one who is also able to present you before his Father's throne blameless on that great day, to him be glory now and forever. Amen.